Okay, everyone. Um, this is the Equal Justice Podcast. Uh, my name is Anthony Costello. The Equal Justice Podcast is a forum for all those who seek truth, value, tradition, and fight to defend the foundations of a moral and just society. I'm here uh, today with Logan Zeppieri, and this is our uh, sort of series on um, which a little bit more of a deep dive where we are trying to carefully read through, analyze, offer some uh, hopefully helpful criticism to um, some essays uh, that were written by Dr. Nathan Cartagena, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Wheaton University in Illinois, a very prestigious Christian institution to say the least. Dr. Cartagena's pedigree is excellent. Uh, he has uh, philosophy degrees from, I believe it's Texas A&M or, tech, uh, yeah, Texas A&M, I think, or Texas and Baylor, his PhD from Baylor. So um, we know that he is uh, educationally well-equipped, um, but uh, we've had our concerns. Uh, this, uh, these series of essays are uh, going to be formed into a book. We've already uh, reviewed a panel discussion that Dr. Cartagena was part of, uh, a CCCU um, panel discussion. Uh, you can find that. We will link uh, to that discussion uh, where Dr. Cartagena is uh, joined by several others who seem to really um, genuinely want to embrace critical race theory. Um, and Logan, I think um, what we're getting a sense of in reading the work or listening to the interviews with uh, some of these fellow Christians who are on board with critical race theory is, you know, it's more, it seemed to want to use it more than just an analytical tool to figure out better ways to sort of amend or adapt some of our legal system. But that really this is uh, now moving into the realm of how we need to adapt, amend our ways of knowing. So our epistemology, yeah. potentially our metaphysics. So more broadly, uh, our theology in general. Um, and this is where I think that move, uh, we're, we're very wary of, um, of that move from taking this to which would originally was a way to look at some concrete so aspects of the law and maybe figure out why or how sort of a history of racism was still, uh, you know, ingrained in some sort of uh, some of the legal system and some concrete laws. Yeah. But uh, now, now that we can just sort of take this and apply it to theology, you know, more broadly. Or Christianity yeah. as a whole. Well, I think this, the idea that it's just a tool, CRT is just a tool, came about in a response to a response that we've done and others have done uh, to some of the concerns with CRT. I think, though, what's important, though, is it wasn't an ill-found concern. When you look at the scholars, and I, as we go through this essay, the individuals that uh, Cartagena is referring to and referencing, mm -hmm. they're making these claims as well. And what we don't see in his papers or even in his panel is a clear disassociation with the world worldview building aspect right. of it. Right. It seems to be, at least in the articles that we've read so far, it seems like there is an acceptance or maybe 
a uh, uh, not actually refuting or distancing themselves from that aspect that we are claiming. So I think it didn't necessarily start out as just an ice, you know, this sort of objective analysis of law, how it came to be and how it's being applied. It started off as very much an activist project to overturn a particular kind of legal structure, almost separate from um, maybe uh, the, the sort of augmenting tool structure that they tend to kind of throw out. Oh, CRT is just something we can add on, add another kind of another lens to the existing right. situation right. to make it more just. They're saying, no, we actually need to put in a whole new legal system backed Ooh. by a particular worldview. Which would, which would get rid of basically uh, much of the political philosophy of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century that sort of shaped um, America and the West. And that has brought a lot of freedom and democracy to much of the world, uh, as Jacob Daniel has pointed out uh, so many times in our, our own podcasts. So, um, well, let's start off. Now, we're, we're backtracking a little bit. We're going back to part one of this uh, three-part series of essays by Dr. Cartagena. Part two, we will link to as well, where we get a little more in depth on some of the sources that he's drawing from. But, uh, and again, the essays are simply entitled uh, Critical Race Theory of Christian's Reflections. And uh, Logan, he opens up with some epigraphs. Uh, first one is a quote from Cornell West. Uh, quote, Critical race theory is the most exciting development in contemporary legal studies. Now, there it does have the legal, end quote, the legal aspect. But um, digging a little bit more into that uh, Cornell West quote, you seem to um, think that it's, it re again, it's not really just legal studies here that we're talking about. No, exactly. And this quote, um, he links into it, we'll link into the podcast description, uh, a CRT book has like a series of essays from the founders of CRT. This particular quote comes from the forward that's written by Cornell West. And if you read through all the way to the end of that forward, Cornell West, he writes, because I mean, the question you have to ask is, okay, what is critical race theory and why is it exciting? And you, you get the two, this is the opening sentence, I believe, of that preface. He writes, in short, critical race theory is an intellectual movement that is both particular to our postmodern and conservative times and part of a long tradition of human resistance and liberation. On the one hand, the movement highlights a creative and tension-ridden fusion of theoretical self-reflection, formal innovation, radical politics, existential evaluation, reconstructive experimentation, and vocational anguish. But like all bold attempts to reinterpret and remake the world, which that's the concern that has been, I think, rightly raised by us and others, to reveal silent suffering and to relieve social misery, critical race theorists put forward novel readings of a hidden past that disclose the flagrant shortcomings of the treacherous present in the light of unrealized, though not unrealizable, possibilities for human freedom and equality. So I think, yes, a lot of the times people will quote these individuals by saying, see, it's just legal studies. See, it's just a tool. We're just trying to figure it out. But if you read all the way through, the writer's own interpretation of the project that they're doing is worldview building or reinterpreting worldviews and the question has to come okay well what does that mean what kind of worldview is being put in its place what reinterpretation is happening what is it trying to undermine 
And I think that's a proper concern that we've been raising and others have been raising. I've said this already, but, um, and we'll get, we'll get to some of the points that Nathan makes later yeah. on that. The second quote though is interesting because he was, he quotes the conservative Baptist network as well. Right. Um, I've since looked it up. I think they changed that quote. Mm-hmm. I don't, yeah. I couldn't find it um, even with the LinkedIn, but the quote that he gives is the conservative Baptist network rejects various unbiblical ideologies currently affecting the Southern Baptist convention, such as critical race theory, intersectionality, in social justice. Now, without reading that Cornell quote, what you get, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> is sort of on the one side is an exciting new legal study. On the other side, you have the conservatives that are just kind of upset right. with this new thing that's exciting. Yeah. I think the question though, and this should really go to the front, forefront of our minds is why would the conservative Baptist network be, be claiming that it has unbiblical ideologies if it's just a legal some some sort of abstract legal tool. Right. Well, there's a couple things I'll add to that. One, um, I mean, when you read that, that full quote from Cornell West, you know, um, and this again goes to your emerging sense of something about critical race theory, or maybe even critical theories more broadly, having this sort of Nietzschean resentment in there where, you know, we've been so failed by um, the political philosophies or even the theology of the past, you know, that we have to find a way to overturn um, everything that they've done, you know, because it's only been white oppression. It's only been colonialism and domination. And one thing uh, that you've pointed out is this is a, can oftentimes uh, sort of uh, come off as a very simplistic reading of history, right? Um, you know, sort of neglecting uh, the vast good uh, that has also come through various forms of colonialism or through the political philosophy that um, drove the um, war for independence in the United States that facilitated the abolition movement, that uh, motivated Americans to fight a civil war, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that certainly, if not gets, if, if it doesn't get pushed to the, um, the, the background, it, uh, you know, it, re- it, it, it won't really get mentioned. You know, it, it sort of uh, wants to be, um, the idea here is that you know we can't we can't shed any any light on the on the positives of human flourishing that yeah. um, you know uh, I don't want to say white supremacy that's their term but you know that the principles or the the founding principles of you know the United States the founding fathers of the United States the Constitution and so on and so far, forth you don't want to shed any positive light on that because that sort of just weakens your rhetorical. Uh, force, you know, for this idea that everything has to be overturned. And I think we're seeing again, as we go through it, we're seeing the same impulse with regards to theology. Everything about theology since uh, Latin, you know, Latin, in the Latin West, at least since the Reformation, maybe even a hundred years prior to the Reformation has to be dismantled 
Um, and this tends, this comes off as a very, again, reductionistic and simplistic uh, sort of reading of history. Um, yeah. And that's where I think, as we move into the essay now, the, the important part is you have the details of the debate, questions about do they get, um, you know, European colonialism right? Do they get the SCOTUS rulings right? Do they get the American yeah. founding right? So you have those critiques. But then you sort of have this meta conversation of is CRT a worldview or worldview builder right. or is it just an analytic tool? And right. Nathan has made the argument and others in, in like in his line of thinking have made that argument. The question we're asking those, it doesn't seem like the founders of CRT would agree. And it doesn't look like you've made a clear case on why that is to be true in your essay. So then maybe there's more writings to come, yeah. but it seems like the, at least the meta argument, is it a worldview? or worldview builder, or is it a tool, mm -hmm. seems to flow to the side that says, it, in fact, it seems like it's a worldview builder. The people who you're quoting seems to agree as well. Right. And I, um, I referenced in another video, I believe, that we did, um, that when we start working within the framework of social theory as a discipline, um, you know, and I quoted, um, you know, Max... I, I quoted James Bowman's article on critical theory in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, where he's referencing Max Horkheimer's view of what a social or what a critical theory is. Um, and Horkheimer, of course, was one of the founding fathers of the Frankfurt School, which gave birth to um, critical theory. And Bowman says, and I'll quote here one more time in the, from the article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, quote, echoing Marx in the German ideology, Horkheimer insists that for a critical theory, the world and subjectivity in all its forms have developed with the life processes of society, end quote. So, um, you're going to need to do a lot of Christianizing of any sort of uh, tool or academic view that is operating solely within the framework of a critical theory or a social theory that rejects any, no, any sense of there being anything we can know outside of whatever society produces as knowledge. And we'll get to this a little bit more down the line of the fundamental dis difference between a Christian epistemology, where it is the intellect grasping truth versus um, a social theory epistemology, where it is the person or the group producing knowledge, producing yeah. uh, truth, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And I think it's safer to say that there's been more academic work arguing how and under what conditions CRT or other critical theories will reinterpret the world than there has been distinct, distinguishing from that project and saying it is an analytic tool. There, right. It seems like all the academic, all the scholars being cited, the, specifically the scholars he's citing are all on, on the margins of this is a worldview Right. building and reinterpreting. Right. It seems like there's a few who's just claiming mm -hmm. it's just a tool and there has to be some, some scholarly work on that, at least a minimally. 
Right. Maybe there's some lawyers who are critical theorists, right? And they're just looking at very particular aspects of law. But a lot of these people are talking about getting rid of sort of every sort of aspect of human culture that has arisen since, you know, the 15th or 16th century, you know, capitalism and, you know, you know, sort of like, you know, Christian theology and so on and so forth. But okay. So he starts off first uh, uh, section, critical race theory in the church. And uh, he mentions that in 2015 Christians, and you know, I think here he's especially concerned about evangelical Protestant Christians in America although it might apply to some degree to Roman Catholics as well, they had, to they had to change their approach to race. And he lists a few of the controversial incidents um, that had to do with police, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, and Freddie Gray, who were, which were all some of these controversial uh, killings that involved the authorities. But then he also mentions a white supremacist, a clear-cut case of sort of white supremacy, the murder of nine members of the Emanuel African Methodist Church in Charleston. Yeah. Um, and I thought it interesting, Logan, that he seems to sort of conflate to already right there, there seems to be a conflation to me of two very different um, kinds of events. Uh, and this is, I think, just the tricky waters of critical race theory where Critical race theory, on the one hand, wants to talk about systemic issues embedded in the system, where even if you didn't have an actual racist in the culture, the system, just in virtue of being put together 150, 200 years ago, or whatever, by people who were racist, has problems, versus what I would, what we've been trying to call this like common sense racism. Actually, no, I'm sorry, simple racism or something like this, which is, hey, there was this kid who just hated black people because of their skin color and went into their church and shot him up. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's hard to make the case as, well, this section might be functioning in a little different way, but it seems like using these examples, they want to make the claim that there are tips of an iceberg, of a systemic iceberg. It's hard, though, to make the case that um, the institution of slavery or the 1790 Naturalization Act or um, certain Jim Crow laws made this individual go and shoot up a church. It, the, the connection seems to be very remote at best. Now, this section, though, I think, I think you're right on that the distinction between the individual act versus the systemic question, which they're trying to raise. But he opens up with something that I'm not entirely sure is distinguishable from what would be considered a political narrative, which was, if you go back to Obama when he was running, this narrative that was kind of produced by the left, which was something like, if you elect President Obama, racism will be over. Mm. Now you don't, that's not, that wasn't the conservative argument it seemed to be a persuasive narrative, but you have to be careful that when he says in the very second sentence, actually, not the first, or I guess technically a third sentence, um, that there was a chorus of voices claiming that the U.S. had become a post-racial society, this sort of utopian vision that we finally made it, didn't stem from conservative scholars. This came from a political fight that was emerging during an election year. Yeah. 
And then the second thing, though, is but I, but I do think he's right in the sense that for those who did make that claim, electing an individual person who represents, you know, a black individual mm-hmm. doesn't state whether or not something's post-racial. You don't have racial intention. I think that's correct. I think you just have to be careful when you bring in political fights and say, see, this is what the culture was saying when it was clearly a cultural battle for the highest office in the land. It happened to be a narrative that very much pushed, whether or not you agree with Obama's policies, whether or not you're Republican or Democrat, there has to be some sense in which you realize there was a political election and you're going to bring up narratives to help further your party's position. Right. So who that chorus of voices were that were declaring U.S. Uh, post-racial society, you know, what was mo- and what was motivating them to say that, you know, would yeah, because, matter. Yeah, because most, I think most conservatives, um, by and large, would say that, or, you know, even going to some of Sowell's work, mm-hmm. that racism, you're not going to have a post-racism humanity. Right. That seems to be out of the question because now you're saying we've gotten to the point where particular sin is no longer relevant. Yes. I don't think you'll ever get to that. We've excised a particular sin from human nature. Yeah. I don't know if that's not the conservative. That's just not a traditionally conservative understanding of human nature. Exactly. And so I do think you have to be careful of who is, as you said, who is the, Right. Chorus who, of voices. Who, who was the chorus of voices? Good point. Excellent. Because it wasn't the SBC per, per se. I don't. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's right. Exactly. They weren't saying, "Oh, now that we've elected Obama, racism will vanish off the face of God's creation." Yeah. No, I don't think any, any conservatives were making that that point. Um, so these were horrendous injustices. Now, again, there they'd say, "Well." You know, it's controversial as to whether or not, I don't know much about the Garner and Gray cases, but after watching what killed Michael, Shelby Steele's film, What Killed Michael Brown, you know, I'd say you'd have to at least make some distinction between the killing of the nine at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was clearly an injustice, and the killing of Michael Brown, where I think it's still an open debate on whether or not that was a just or unjust use of violence. So again, you know, this is where we would hope or encourage that, you know, when this gets into maybe book form, Dr. Cartagena has made maybe a little bit more nuanced, uh, added some more nuance to his claims here. Yeah, and one thing, you know, maybe this would be an interesting conversation to have. Um, because I, I'm just finishing up Michelle um, Alexander's work, the new Jim Crow, but when, this, but this still happens even with with the series of examples he gives. Start looking at the locations they bring up. You have Ferguson, Missouri, which is in Greater St. Louis. You have NYPD with Eric Gardner. Mm-hmm. You have Baltimore Police with Freddie um, Gray. You have she, all the time refers to Washington D.C., um, Los Angeles. Philadelphia, Chicago, when you start looking at these places, I don't think it's sufficient to say they've been Democrat controlled. It's a Democrat problem, but it is interesting to think of, okay, what kind of policies are being implemented that seem to be 
along these lines of very particular political parties. And that would be an interesting social question to ask because when you see on the news, they say there's been a 400% hate crimes. Where do they go? Los Angeles and New York City. Well, that's interesting because they've been dominated by a very particular political ideology for some time now. And it doesn't seem like it's getting better. Seattle, Portland, um, other examples that Michelle Alexander uses. It would be an interesting question. A good job of highlighting Chicago as well as in in that film because he's from Chicago. And Mm -hmm. uh, I I am familiar intimately with some of the neighborhoods that he highlights in in that movie. So I definitely would commend people to watch that and disseminate it as well. A very important film. Yeah, and Steele does a good and Steele does a good example because he talks about engaging with those programs himself and seeing the question of you want you have these utopian visions that come into a particular community, you have the flow of money, you have gang violence, you have particular interests, and then trying to navigate that. And he he puts a very bleak picture, but um, he does recount in his book, White Guilt, where he was talking to one of the architects of this vision. He said, we were doing so good. It was so good. It was so good. And he said, what happened if it was so good that when the money was gone, it all fell apart? So he does raise up some interesting questions that yeah. have, for the most part, gone you know, unscrutinized. Well, and if there's one thing I think that comes through in that film is it's, that is clearly articulated is that the way to improve the experiences of urban black uh, families is not by deconstructing the entire system of American governance. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and or Christian theology. Um, although he doesn't get into that aspect of it uh, explicitly. Um, okay. So, you know, but, and I'll going back to the Cornell West, I didn't want to make this one point though, that because you brought up the Democrat controlled cities as being, some of the more the ones that have the bigger problems of race yeah well not so much me making the claim or these are the examples they're using yeah right when they go down the list i'm saying well there seems to be these are the examples you're using you're just pointing out the right right exactly what critical race theorists like alexander themselves are using and that these cities have been dominated by a particular political agenda and narrative for decades yeah um but, you know, we have made the point before, and I think it's worth saying again, that critical race theory, while, while it's, you're probably going to be hard-pressed to find many political conservatives who are going to be on board with critical race theory or theorists, it's not like uh, critical race theory is something where you're automatically going to accept it if you're politically liberal on other issues, Right. Um, and there, we've, we've mentioned so many uh, people who are politically liberal in, in uh, and many other social and economic issues, but who fervently are rejecting uh, the use of critical race theory, both as certainly as a worldview, but, but also even as a, as a useful tool. You know, and, and we'll, I'll just list a couple names again, John McWhorter, um, Glenn Lowry, I think would fall into that category. Um, Andrew Sullivan has been highly critical of uh, intersectionality and critical race theory and and others, Uh, whites, blacks, non-Christians, you know, people who are politically liberal though are- Or even atheists. You have even people who are not, or non, or you have Richard Dawkins coming out being like, well, this seems to be going there. So people you would have not thought would have been on the same side. 
is and cutting. That's why I wanted to say it's not just uh, Democrat-controlled. Go ahead. We've mentioned James Lindsay's work before yeah. and uh, his book, Cynical Theories, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Okay. These are, yeah. So he goes, uh, so Dr. Cartagena goes on, Nathan goes on to say, um, you know, this has led to um, a lot of, so having, there having to be a new conversation in the church about race issues. But then he goes on to say that there's been two problems um, by Christians church leaders, pastors, um, Christian leaders who have some kind of public platform. And that is that um, they've either been silent on critical race theory, or they've done just a really poor job of sort of saying why they're against it, but they've come out being against it. Yeah, okay. Okay, so that would be the following section. Let me just say something before we close out that first section of uh, it was entitled CRT in the Church. He ends that section by saying, for some, CRT is an ideology antithetical to the gospel. For others, it is a helpful tool Christians should employ to facilitate justice and love of neighbor. And for others, CRT remains a nebulous phrase and nothing more. I wanted to say that I, th I think that's fair to to prop up those three positions as kind of kind of what's on the table at the moment. Right. What I think has to be careful, and this is what we see, I think, from it could be from both sides. I've seen this happen where and and not just particularly to the CRT debate, where if you disagree with CRT, you're not on the side that says CRT is ideological, antithetical to the gospel. What they do is try to push you into that you're you just think CRT is a nebulous phrase and you don't really understand what's being taught or being said by the CRT side. So you have to recognize those are the yes. three positions on the table and it's legitimate for each person to at least reside in those positions and make their cases from that position. I think very often people say, no, I think it's antithetical to the gospel. I think um, there's some, some questions, we're gonna dig into this if, if this is happening in this paper, where if they disagree, they actually just don't know what CRT is. And right. that you have to be careful of. Right. It's, it's assumed if you disagree that you haven't done your homework. Yeah. Yeah. You just haven't read enough books or whatever, or read the right books or so on and so forth. So you could, there's a question here of whether or not one could read all the relevant material and still disagree, justifiably disagree. And we want to say that Certainly there are people out there who have done that. They've done exactly that. Um, yeah. You know, they have studied the relevant material and they firmly believe that it is neither useful as a tool uh, and certainly not um, something that should be embraced as a worldview. Yeah. Now going to what you're saying, yes, I think the next section is entitled silence and lack of clarity, right. which he's going to claim, I think is the, he thinks is the two prevailing problems in current evangelical circles, or maybe, um, no, I don't think he says more broadly. I think he's keeping it to the evangelicals. Um, he lifts a couple, this, the Conservative Baptist Network, uh, John MacArthur, uh, Neil Shenvey. I think there's a few things that, that could be said, and that is his site of who he um, refers to and those who he doesn't refer to. Um, and in passing really quick, I think we've mentioned this in other podcasts that 
you have someone like Bodie Bauckham who's spoken on this right. continually, who's in within this sort of evangelical for several broader years. for several for, years. For a very yeah, for a very long time. There's no reference to. So I think there is some sort of missing on those who have done or the people we've been interviewing right. who have a ton to say about CRT that well, would be classified and, as evangelical. You have to say there's been a lot of people who haven't been silent or unclear. They've jumped right on board with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's those people too. You know, and I do want to uh, refer people also back to uh, a February 21st Manhattan Institute interview that Coleman Hughes did with John Yu, who is a uh, pro professor of law at Stanford, and Christopher Rufo, who's been writing about critical theory and critical race theory for several years, who's sort of a boots on the ground journalist, where you know, there's another sort of reason why a lot of people don't want to touch critical race theory. And, and this outside the church. And John, you makes this point is because when you do, you get ostracized. And people just don't want to deal with, they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with the personal attacks, the ad hominems that seem to come along with weighing in on critical race theory uh, critically. So there's something very uncharitable about how critical race theory has been presented in the secular academy for decades now. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little suspicious about Dr. Cartagena's approach here, which feels very critical and heavy handed towards church leaders and pastors and stuff, as if they should have not only known about critical race theory for the last 30 years, you know, they should have known everything about it. Although, as we're going to see later, he's going to go on to say it's a very ambiguous movement with incompatible traditions and da, da, da. But apparently, every, you know, pastors and church elders and other sort of leaders are supposed to know everything about it. You know, yeah, so that they're they supposed know. to be able to define a yeah. particular theory that the theorists within the tradition have been unable to, so, to define. And again, I, I hate to sound uncharitable in my assessment so far, because obviously we don't know Dr. Cartagena personally, but I don't know. I mean, this idea that the church has been silent. Well, maybe it's been silent for good reasons because it's a, it's a mess of a, of a, of a theory, <laughs> you know, yeah. like get your theory in order first before the church has to res necessarily respond. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, we should also make a careful distinction where when he says the, the critique against the church, isn't that the church has been silent on racism. Yes. Because that's clearly not the case. And it's been silent about particular views concerning critical race theory. And, and I, that's an I important think, distinction. I think, he, I think he really does himself a disservice. I hate to say this as a scholar when he quotes Martin Luther King Jr. here, who I, I was, was clearly talking about racism mm -hmm. and not critical race theory, which really hadn't even been articulated yet in, 19, in the 1960s during the civil rights era. And he, he uses the Martin Luther King, you know, I think Martin Luther King Jr. Just, he gets so, I, I never, I never reference Martin Luther King Jr. Because I just feel like people are just using him because he's been lionized at this point, you know, and, but I, I feel like there, it's like clearly Martin Luther King Jr. is talking about white 
churches, white society be, being silent about the problem of racial bigotry, not about some theory. Yeah. And so I, I, I think that's a misuse of that quote. Anyways. Yeah. Well, so I think that the first one is in passing, he does miss out on a lot of people who have been talking about this Any subject. I think there is the question, as you brought up with John Yu and others, where it yeah. seems like if you speak out against or critique critical race theory, you are ostracized. But then the people he does quote, I think what's important is to not ask the question, are they just being ambiguous in their kind of offensive maneuvers in responding to CRT, but are they being appropriate to their background specialization and their sort of fencing or hemming in what is able to be done within the confines of critical race theory. So you have someone like when they quote John MacArthur, he's talking about, well, it seems like whatever critical race theory does, it can't divide us by race. That seems to be not biblical. It can't divide us into oppressed oppressors because now you're in, you're kind of imputing certain sort of sins and certain sort of virtues arbitrarily to individuals. So he kind of hems in, I think from, what his background is. You can't have someone who's been a pastor's entire life switch over to CRT and be able to respond to it. He's saying, well, seems like whatever CRT is, it has to at least be mindful of these theological truths. And if it, where it transgresses those, that's where it's violating, he thinks, the gospel, and you should prefer the gospel's interpretation to the, to the human condition than to CRT, which I think is a fair move. And another thing we, we, we should also point out is and again maybe this will be different in the book like treatment but you know some of these statements that were made by like the southern baptist convention or maybe even by a particular church um the statements oftentimes are are the summaries they're they're the summations of more work that's been done and that they're just being messaged succinctly just so people know where that church organization or that particular church stands on an issue but maybe if you know we should give people the benefit of the doubt that they might have actually you know that the 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 reading the hard work also stands behind those more succinct summaries i mean there is a bible behind the creeds right um you know so uh you know i don't now we don't know that because we haven't looked into everything that the Southern Baptist Convention has done on CRT or the six Southern Baptist Seminary presidents. But again, as I made this point when we were responding to one of Phil Vischer's podcasts, it stretches credulity for me to think that Al Mohler has not at least done some work, intellectual work, yeah. with regards to critical race theory before he signed his name to that that statement by the Southern Baptist seminary uh, um, leadership, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, like he just willy nilly signed his name to that thing, but has no clue about, you know, critical theory, social theories, critical race theories, critical legal studies, which I just guarantee you he does. Yeah. And you've made this point before. I think um, John MacArthur does a good job in kind of validating that point because he quotes something about, um, John MacArthur saying that anger, resentment, and vengeful separation, he's attributing to CRT. I think there's something to be said about the academic 
theorizing that goes into a particular theory and kind of as you said like the boots on the ground how is this affecting the church who within the church is adopting this theory how is it being employed and when a pastor is responding to perhaps congregational woes you can't be in a position to go well you just don't understand the theory in its abstract ivory tower sense like well it is also a valid response to say but when you implement it there seems to be some destructive force that we do really need to contend with and that is i think a valid objection to crafting a particular theory there has to be an ebb and flow between the ivory tower and sort of the ground at which it's built from and i'll give a look i'll give a, a generic and i won't name the church's names uh for the sake of you know some anonymity but i was at a at, you know i was going to two churches one is a, a very large well-known church with a long history in the area here predominantly white and there were leanings towards just embracing social justice and critical race theory. And it was causing all kinds of, it was causing division among young white people, basically. Uh, One young man was giving me some of the anecdotes in his own life because he was just a very incisive sort of critical thinker. And he was pushing back a little bit on some of the narrative that was filtering down. Now I'm no longer at that church. Now I'm at a church where I'm one of, two white people, if you want to take white to mean European, of European descent. Well, I can't even say that because- like Western European descent. Obviously, think- <laughs> are of European descent too. Yeah. But, I, you know, one of two whitish people that isn't Hispanic, I guess. And uh, everybody's there is suspicious, if not just firmly against anything social justice, critical race theory. This is a very mm-hmm. conservative church. Um, and I mean, just, I'm just putting that out there that there, you know, in the one church, the bigger predominantly white church, it, the effect was division, division between friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, I don't know, maybe even husbands and wives. It was causing division, you know? Now, I don't yeah. know that the pastor really got his, his arms around that problem and it, maybe it's still ongoing. Um, and I'm not trying to judge him, but then when I go, you know, now that I'm fully embedded in the smaller, very less white church, but where there's almost absolute agreement that the whole social justice movement that's born out of critical race theory is antithetical to the gospel. We're not going to have that around here. It's not going to divide us. So, okay. Yeah. Anyways, um, which does lead me now, you know, there's this claim that Dr. Cartagena does make in his paper he goes, gets into sort of a personal story here, although he doesn't give concrete details. And this has been one of my pet peeves in some of the things I've seen written by people who want to embrace critical race theory is also then claiming they've been victims of some yeah. kind of racial or racialized attacks. You know, and yeah. he says, as a racialized minority suffering uh, from internal and external forms of racism, I don't know what an in, I don't know what, exactly what he means by internal and external. This betrayal hurts. He says he has racialized wounds. Now, again, I, I just raised the point that I I struggle these days. You know, same thing with some of the claims that were made in the panel discussion. This is where I just say, look, you got to give me concrete incidents. 
if you're going to make these claims of being a victim, being wounded, being treated as racially inferior, I, especially when I, I see his pedigree, he'd been to some excellent programs. I would want to know if people, if the directors of those programs are racists and how they were, how they actually treated him as he went through his philosophy degrees. I mean, yeah. if, if, if as a parent, if I had children and I were, and I were considering sending them off to Baylor or Texas A and M, I think it was Texas A and I had looked at CV again. It might be Texas. Um, you know, I'd want to know. I'd want to know who's there, what kind of decisions are being made. I mean, um, do they do these people really have racial bias and how was he wounded? I mean, otherwise, you know, I worry that people are make again, they're making claims for rhetorical purposes. I mean, again, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to make my own accusation, but I I'm suspicious at least. Yeah. Well, I think it's, we're in a, a society now where to ask for the facts of a situation is now to somehow be victim blaming. I had this conversation back when the me too movement was kind of, coming to its like pinnacle moment and some situations had happened and I had uh, in, in the media and I had said, well, I think um, we, they, she, this individual should take that person to court and um, file. I mean, if it's sexual harassment, if it's just rape statutory or not, there should be handled in court evidence brought the jury we should we should go through the process and an individual responded to me wait are you saying that someone who has been raped has to face the person who perpetuated rape i said yes that's part of the court system that you have to bring the charges up you have to have a jury you have to evaluate the evidence yes it's hard to go through that trial but if what he did in other words, if you don't go through the trial, if the argument is that the trial is too hard, you're saying that the crime is not as bad as the experience it left on the person. Right. You have to be able to say, you know what? I have to go through this pain to make sure justice is served. You know, this is huge. I, let's stay on this for a second because I looked up and it was Grove City College, I think was his undergrad. And then Texas A&M, I was right, and Texas A&M, which has a great, very well-known philosophy program and Baylor, which we know has an astounding program, especially for Christian philosophy or doing philosophy from a Christian uh, standpoint. Um, you know, I, I just, somebody who has been privy to what a story of a, uh, somebody's story of victimhood, how it can fall apart completely when a lawyer just asks some pinpoint questions, yeah. factual questions. And having seen that firsthand uh, and having, and, and seeing the, how the narrative falls apart. Um, and these were serious allegations too. Yeah. Um, you make a good point. Your experience of it, if it's really that bad, then you, you, you know, you have to be able to produce the evidence to show that your experience matches up to reality. Yeah. Sorry. Well, and the hope is that the yeah. evidence would then be used to inflict the appropriate consequence. What the you're almost saying is that the pain of going through it yeah, is <laughs> more significant than the punishment that should be inflicted on the other person. I mean, that's... Who might also do it again, I suppose. Exactly. So and so now you're... 
Well, this is what's so important is, you know, because some people would hear this and go, oh, it's just, you know, you, you, you just don't know how bad it is. But what I'm saying is you have to incorporate, is the punishment of the individual less significant than re- reliving or retelling your experience? Is the possibility of that being inflicted on another person less problematic than your own experience? So now you have to start, when you start adding up the calculus, you're, you're really making a very interesting claim when you say, I can't face the individual who did this to me because my experience is greater than, or the harms done by going through that experience again is greater than his crime and perhaps any of the continued criminal acts he does against other people. Well, and the other thing I don't like about this is he says that this happened to him, right? Now, any of his professors or directors at Texas a- at Grove City, Texas A&M and Baylor, now, unless he's talked to them about them already, but this is, this is public work now. Yeah. So now you got a bunch of people who are thinking, which one of these people, it's kind of like what happened with the, with the Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Somebody mm-hmm. in the royal family made this comment about what color their baby might be. I, although Meghan Markle looks totally white to me. I don't know what race she is, but whatever. But they won't say who it is. So now you got a whole public out there who's speculating who's the racist person in the yeah, royal I mean, it forms family. like a wish hunt. You know, trying is, to find yeah. and speculate who right. the criminal is. And this is a side effect of not having, you know, naming names or going through a legal proceeding is then now it's, you're just subjugating, subjugating wholesale and a whole, an entire whole, royal family saying it could yeah. be any one of you. So as far as I, as far as I'm concerned, the entire, all the departments, the philosophy department at Baylor and the philosophy department at Texas A&M are under indictment here. They've been indicted. Or I'm sorry, accused. There's an accusation yeah. here. Right? And we don't know. And, it, and, that, and it's a serious accusation. I'd be I think... careful to throw that stuff out there. Yeah. Anyways, I, we should move on. But he does say, um, and I know we're going we're, we're, we're going to probably get a lot of pushback yeah. on this, but so be it. I mean, let's, yeah. let's surface and just, this stuff. And just before we go to the last section, because yeah. we, we do need to continue on. Yeah. He does make the comment about Neil Shenvey and Pat um, Sawyer. Right. You know, he says, suggest that there are areas in which Christians should agree with critical race theory without specifying how those areas relate to the broader whole. I think that's an entirely misquoted. When you read through um, Shenvey's article, where he talks about, he lists... Um, I mean, how many reasons? Uh, five reasons in which CRT is correct in certain ways and how that impacts the greater Christian church. I mean, that's the purpose of what, half the article. And so I don't know, without further explanation, just saying it, he, he doesn't do it. Well, he, that's the, the thrust of the article. He talks about how everything in critical race theory is not false that certain things should be affirmed like that race isn't a biological feature and then talks about how um it 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 functions in the christian worldview as you go down later in the article he talks about the notion of hegemonic power he talks about how crt functions the worldview he talks about um the problem of its uh understanding relationships and power dynamics and he's for a, what is it? This was published in the Gospel Coalition. For Gospel Coalition article, it was pretty thorough. I mean, you can't expect him to write a journal article necessarily right. on right. this. Yeah. But I think the claim on its own is, 
I would be interested to see why Nathan believed it. What he just didn't address how it connects to the greater whole. What right. what part of this worldview is he looking at? But anyways, the, the next section. I mean, I also took contention with his his again saying that the people have been engaged in selective anti-intellectualism. I seems to me just because people don't read what you read, that doesn't mean that it's selective anti-intellectualism. But then let's get into yeah this. But okay, why are people being selective? Well, the next section, academic academic fluidity of defining CRT, where he talks about how difficult it is to for even scholars to sort of get an understanding of what critical race theory is. And here he mentions three scholars, Lewis Gordon, Charles Mills, Lucius Outlaw, who misidentify CRT. Um, yet again, your local pastor is supposed to be able to get this stuff and articulated it, articulated to his congregation. So, um, yeah. Okay. I mean, same criticism that I sort of levied before. If, if scholars who work in this field can't even get a grip on this, it seems a little unseeming to make these charges against people in the church for not getting it. Yeah, I mean, it puts pastors in an interesting position where if they totally don't say anything, then they fall under Nathan's critique of being silenced. Right. If they say anything, they fall under the critique of not being specific enough. Being ignorant. Yeah. But it seems like the academic situation is also in such a flux that you don't have necessarily academics. So it would be possible under this section for a pastor to quote a CRT scholar and still be wrong in defining. Now, we're not, again, you're going to have all these issues whenever you use any theory or use its, you know, all these theories are being debated. But I think it takes the edge off of the, I think, wholesale condemnation of the evangelical community for not addressing this issue or at least to the specifics that he's requiring. I mean, look, let's, I, I've been very critical so far. I understand as a scholar, he wants to get back to the original sort of critical race theorists from the 70s and 80s and early 90s who were doing sort of this, first and foremostly, this legal work. You know, he talks about going back to the sources. and And that's... Obviously, that's the way scholarship should be done. It's commendable. And I don't think there's any problem in doing that. It's just he opens up with a lot of charging people with various sort of intellectual crimes, I guess, which I just don't yeah. feel was Or, or being you anti-intellectual or something like yeah. that. Okay, so he, so he says, you know, the church, he says, quote, confusion, next section. Confusion, misidentification, and gentrification characterizes academic treatments of CRT. Silence and name-dropping typify treatments within the church. So, he says, end quote, because of that, we need more light, we need a guide. And, you know, presumption yeah. here is that he's going to be this guide for us, he's going to do all of the necessary reading. Um, or maybe we should say has done all the necessary reading um so that he can sort of enlighten us yeah and i think that's just important as we move now on to this kind of the end of that section um well 
we move past beyond academic fluidity into yeah. the need for a guide. I, it's right. just important to make that when we say that CRT is ill-defined, it's not us projecting onto CRT scholarship, it's ill-defined nature. This is Nathan bringing up that in fact, within the scholarship, it is ill-defined. So just for the audience, so they could see what we're tracking, a lot of the claims we're making is more of a contextual response. There are some that we've said, obviously we think this is wrong, but there seems to be an incoherence within the system that he's bringing forward within this essay. Now he does describe himself as a race scholar teaching CRT at an evangelical Christian college. And I, I do want to make the point to people, whoever listens to this, that look, whether or not you like the idea of critical race theory, it is in the church and in its, in the church's institutions. So it, it's, it's, yeah. It's at, it's at every, it's going to be at every seminary to some degree or another, every Christian college. Um, Andrew Sandlin has made this point uh, in some of his lectures, if you can find them online. Um, so, you know, there has to be this, uh, some give and take, some back and forth here. Um, what what um, struck me though also about him saying, I write as a race scholar. I mean, I, I mean, I think he's got very obviously fine credentials to address this topic, but you know, I, I, we've seen recently, for example, Neil Shenvey get canceled from a Veritas forum. And I don't want to get into too many details about that because Neil wasn't a credentialed in the area of critical race studies, right? Or race. Yeah, I think that was the, uh, yeah, I think that was the accusation. Yeah. Uh, because his PhD is in chemistry. He's a, he's a hard scientist, right? He's in the hard sciences, yeah. which kind of bothered me because I'm like, what does this mean? Like people can't pick up a book and read it, you know, and understand it. And, and okay, but there's, there's a, something to be said for being sort of in the milieu, in a particular uh, dialogue. But one wonders here if as a race scholar, uh, Nathan Cartagena, Dr. Cartagena has is equipped to go back and deal with scholars who are all lawyers and attorneys and were in legal studies. You know, we could, one could sort of nitpick here and see here and say, well, he should go back and get his law degree before he yeah. makes any, you know, but that's to get into this game of who can pronounce, make pronouncements on what. Yeah, well, this is, I, th I think this is important. Which I don't want, think is a good way to go. But. Yeah, well, I think it's important, though, is the question of when he said, as a race scholar, how is that phrase functioning yeah, well, in this particular, is it a credentialing way in which he says, therefore, I can say certain particular things. Yeah. The, the, the objection, the response objection would have to be something like, okay, does that mean when you quote things like the, 19, the 1790 Naturalization Act, which is a law, that because you're not in legal studies or you don't have a JD or something like that or whatever, however you want to define that, you, you really don't know the law. I don't know if that would be a fair objection. But the argument, though, I think at least the implied um, uh, view is that if, if you don't have a, a, a degree in a particular subject, maybe you're not acquainted with the right material. However, I don't think that automatically means that if you go into a debate, you're just wrong. Yes. You have to bring up those counter arguments. And so there's this weird sort of 
there's a natural inclination to think that if you don't have a degree in a particular subject, you might not be equipped to address it. But that doesn't just that doesn't provide the counter argument, which means you're wrong. It just might say, okay, well, maybe there's certain things he has to take into consideration, and the CRT scholars can bring that up, and a debate is a perfect platform to do yeah. that. So well, it's, 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 a, it's a, a form of the genetic fallacy, right? That uh, yeah. somehow the person, because he doesn't have certain credentials, can't be a source of truth or justified knowledge. Uh, but the credentials aren't going to be determinative of whether or not somebody's making a good argument or a good point necessarily. Um, you know, well, I wanted to make another thing. We'll get to that. We're going to get to that soon about how I wonder if critical race theory, the way it's operating in, I think Nathan's paper and also amongst the panelists, isn't itself just making one huge genetic fallacy um, in the way it adjudicates over history, but um, yeah, or tries to judge history. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, so he finishes this section saying, uh, which is the wanting to be a guide for the church by saying that, again, reiterating that CRT is a movement aimed at providing an anti-racist understanding of the relationship between race and law. So again, he does say it's about the legal studies here, or the legal yeah. realm at least. Yeah, I think the next section yeah. will kind of test whether or not the definition is sufficient. I think right. having just briefly read um, Cornell West's understanding of CRT, we haven't gotten to Kimberly Crenshaw's, which I think is the next section. The right. question is, does this definition do justice for all it's trying to account for? So, for example, an anti-racist understanding seems to imply an oppositionalist understanding. This is going to be, you know, tra trying to traffic in some of Cornell West's understanding of critical race theory, worldview interpretation. Some of the problems people have with CRT, the, the kind of the fundamental assumptions, which we'll get into next section, seem to not be explicitly named within this definition. So I think the definition in of itself seems to be insufficient for the work he's hoping it does. Right. Right. And then he ends that section again, just saying how diverse uh, CRT is, contested, multi-layered movement, not a single theory, method, or analytical tool. And again, we've already pointed out that, again, maybe that's why it's been so difficult for people to speak about it in churches. Okay, and now this is where sort of for this first essay, we get sort of into the meat of what he's going to tell us critical race. He's going to try and then articulate for us what at least the, the, the common consensus features of critical race theory are. He says there's two interests that critical race theorists have in mind, and they've come to five sort of consensus conclusions. Two interests and five conclusions. The first interest um, is that is to understand how white supremacy came into existence and how it has had lasting effects uh, on, again, first and foremostly the legal realm, but as we'll see, just even culture more broadly, but how white supremacy came to be and its lasting effects. 
Well, I think I think we could be a little bit more specific. I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's trying to make or impute onto CRT that they're trying to figure out the description of the conditions under which white supremacy came to be, but the conditions under which white supremacy created a particular kind of system and how that particular system functions right. in subordinating right. point. people of color. So it, it just, I mean, it's a slight, slight shift, but I think, I don't know if Nathan would say that CRT is responsible for talking about maybe the sociological or psychological origins of why mm -hmm. one particular group would, would, be suppressed. It might. It might be an. It, I think it'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it would be we much kind of more rounded. On that briefly in other podcasts about, you know how. It seems to be that people will always pick some feature, some identifiable feature, noticeable one, if there's some reasons yeah. for the, some ulterior reasons for them to want to suppress or oppress uh, another social group. Yeah, if it's right. advantageous in some way. And skin color could be, an, you know, other things. But skin color is an obvious one. Just yeah, re you know, religious adherence. Yeah. You know, you have the religious wars. You know, so it's right. like pick a feature that's easily identifiable. Right. Um, yeah, so your good point. He's not saying that uh, of why white supremacy emerged, but how um, people who believed that European culture or even white-skinned people uh, were superior, came to create um, legal systems, mercantile systems, whatever, that were advantageous to whites and disadvantageous to non-whites. Yeah, and then how that's maintained or perpetuated and so on and so forth. And he lists the two particular aspects as being the rule of law and equal protection, which are um, I'm not sure if they analyze it so much as they're, they just end up arguing that those are just features of a white supremacist society is the view that, um, that there's the rule of law, that law is universalizable in some particular way. The next essay we, we, yeah. uh, we're going to go we'll into talk about that. We talk about that in the next essay that yeah. the idea that law can be universalizable is I think it's self-considered an aspect of white supremacy. Yes. Feature of white supremacy. This is what they're going to yeah, end saying. Yeah. And then equal pro equal protection seems to be, uh, you know, it, because it doesn't give necessarily equal outcomes. Therefore, you know, so I, again, the question is how much of this is being analyzed versus how much of it is. These are actually concepts they're just looking to undermine. It seems right. like it's more of concepts that they're willing or, or have undermine. And not necessarily, I don't think knowing what, quite what would replace it. I mean, law and context theories. Okay, so there are law and context theories out there, but um, mm -hmm. especially when we get into the, again, applying this to our theology. Uh, you know, again, the, the whole program, the program here being trying to excise um, Christianity from features of Eurocentric Enlightenment thought, I guess, is again, how, how, we've, how we've at least... Um, can you know uh articulated what we think whiteness is is being you know whiteness again is just more of a rhetorical term i think but when we yeah. get into these some of the other it's it's sort of like eurocentric rational 
uh, rationalism born out of the Enlightenment and and the you know scientific revolution. Um, now, just for historical uh, point matter of point here, um, Nathan's going to place the emergence of pigmentocracies, uh, which is the hierarchy of racial categories in or around the 15th century in Portugal, especially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is now he shifts. He, I made this um, point, I think before, but he shifts, he provides a quote from, I believe, uh, Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw. And then, says then he defines white supremacy as he then he quotes someone else now i i made this comment before i i did some piece of digging into it i don't know the relationship between the two different sources but it didn't seem like it would have been a f necessary a fair treatment of crenshaw herself to quote her and then cite another book and saying but this is where what she is using white supremacy to mean and not quoting her own work but quoting someone else's work I don't know if it's necessarily clear that when she says that she has in her mind, you know, Britain, France, Portugal, Spain, and the Netherlands, at least from the sections he's quoting from, right. I don't know. Um, I and again, more needs to be. This was a series out. of essays. Some, I, well, the assumption would be that, you know, everybody makes mistakes and maybe, and this would be cleared up uh, at some point. Um, he then well he then he goes and of course know. the second interest is that okay now and what is the activism piece well what are we going to do about this problem of all of these institutions and systems in the west having been uh constructed for the sake of white people yeah so those and yeah those would be the two interests that yeah. the white supremacy produced these particular kinds of systems the second one's going to be yeah the, the activism portion yeah real quick he lists a bunch of um court cases and then says it betrays the united states as a white nationalist project at its inception and reveal the lengths people went to maintain this racial identity um i think this is a critique i've i've said before there what, what's often missing is the context of a lot of these particular instances so for example the dred scott case he uses obviously i think a miscarriage of justice on its ruling. You have the buildup of a lot of these laws, a lot of fights between the North and South up until this point. I think it gets even to the point where Lincoln connects Dred Scott as sort of the first instance that led to kind of the inevitable civil war at this point. When that ruling came down, it was like, well, all the progress we had made on trying to hem in slavery, not expand it, try to keep the union together with the Supreme Court nullifying most of that progress in one decision. He's like, well, it seems like war is now at this point inevitable. He he misses that, you know, context. Which yeah, is I I you know I hope he's got some history friends in the history department who are also going through this because that does seem problematic to me. Just to say this betrays the United States. Well, what was the United States in 1857? Right, it was it was divided. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Exactly. There was no on on issues of race. Exactly. Specifically. Well, and really then you have to say it that way. You can't really no. say it betrays the whole United States as a white nationalist project. And when you're listing uh, 
legal acts that are from the 18, 1823, 1855, 1857, some of which, as you just pointed out, were the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back with regards to dividing the United States and sending yeah. us into a civil war. Where, exactly. And yeah. what they're missing, so when he talks about the 1719 Naturalization Act, what he's missing is for most of the, from that period of time in history, what you're seeing is very routinely different laws being passed continually about who's allowed and who's not allowed in. It starts, the, starts with, um, I think it's the, like the, plant, the, the Plantation Act of 1740, which was this idea that you had to be Protestant, specifically Anglican. So this is under British control. And so you see actually the progression where the naturalization laws for a time is expanding. So he picks up and says he was only white people. Well, before that, it was only Protestants that were allowed. Catholics were specifically not allowed to become U.S. citizens. Um, well, at this point, British subjects, right? So, you, you know, then there's residency requirements, it's expanding, then you have the expansion into Native Americans um, with the Mississippi are allowed to join in, then you have the Civil War. So, this, like, the context that's being fought right now over citizenship rights, this is the citizenship debate between subjectship versus contractarian sort of views of citizenship. That That's all happening. The 14th Amendment, all these things are happening in between these court cases he cites, which right. doesn't say he's wrong in the superficial view that there are court cases that came down that said only whites can be citizens or only whites and blacks can become citizens. He doesn't use that naturalization act that was passed during that time um, right. that was happening. He kind of ignores this de the underlying debate that shows how complex and how divided and heated the issue was, which ended up, you know, between, I think, but Placey Ferguson and the Chinese uh, or Dred Scott between Dred Scott and um, I guess you could say Plessy versus Ferguson. You have the Civil War, right? Right. Well, um, Chinese like, Exclusion Act is happening. You know, right after this, it seems like. So it's like, you know, I just you're missing think a huge point. You're missing a huge. So like a little bit of an emotional point, but you know, I think of like um, my one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, Glory, with. Uh, <clears throat> Denzel Washington and uh, Matthew Broderick as Kurt, as Robert Gould Shaw, who we had to learn about in the military, you know, in our military, in our basic training handbook, you had to learn about certain military heroes and Robert Gould Shaw was one of those, you know, and, you know, I think of like, um, again, the statement, it betrays the United States as a white nationalist project at its inception and reveals the lengths people went to maintain this racial identity. You know, that's just not entirely the truth. I mean, you're not going to, you know, you can't say that about somebody like uh, a Robert Gould Shaw in the 54th Massachusetts, which was the first black regiment put together uh, by the uh, Union Army. And, you know, at, at some point you got people fighting and dying next to each other, you know, you know, you just can't say that somebody like a Robert Gould Shaw was trying to maintain that racial identity that is white supremacy. It's like, come on, at some point, give up your story because, you know, at the end of the day, um, you're doing a disservice to a lot of people, real people who put their lives on the line for um, each other, you know? So yeah. I, I just, it bothers me. Anyways, 
Okay. Uh, five common, the five common conclusions then that we'll wrap up with. So there were the two interests of trying to understand how white supremacy got embedded into the system, going back to Portugal and the slave trade, which we yep. mentioned, but we do in the well, next it, one. And he ends that paragraph just as we move on. He says, this activist commitment makes CRT an anti-racist project. Yeah. What I'm, what I think needs to, you know, revisiting that original definition, he provides that CRT is a movement aimed at providing an anti-racist understanding of the relationship between race and law. I think, for example, the the activist, so it's not necessarily a, an objective scholarship when you see this in his conclusions, but it's there's a fundamental commitment to activism, which I don't think comes through very clearly in the definition. Yeah. But anyways, first, the five common conclusions. Right, right. The five points. Um, first one is... That's and then here's the biggest problem. I mean, here's the fundamental. This is where I think most a lot of people will jump off. And this is where I think most Christians should jump off right yep. here. So, first of the five common conclusions that shape the project of critical race theory is this quote, rejecting the prevailing orthodoxy that scholarship should be or could be neutral and objective. End quote. Yep. So even if you think scholarship could be objective, it shouldn't be a normative claim there. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's, and that's what I think people might miss is there's that normative claim, which is what CRT, CRT isn't saying we've been too biased. And so we need to become less biased in our scholarship. That's not a possibility. No, no, it's not. Um, so uh, and, you know, I will reference the forthcoming article I have here in the Journal for Christian Legal Studies on the problem of uh, having our own logics based upon the social group or the racial identity that we choose, <laughs> you know, because this is it. This is, uh, you know, whether it's, you want to call it perspectivalism or standpoint of epistemology, you know, and I, I made the... Uh, I quoted uh, Judge Sonia Sotomayor's, uh, Justice Sotomayor's, it was a 2001 speech she gave at Berkeley before she was Supreme Court Justice, talking about there being no universal definition of wisdom, you know, and she was playing off of Sandra Day O'Connor, the first female Supreme Court Justice, who said, who made the, the famous claim, or it was attributed to her, that if you put in older white man and an older, uh, a wise older white man and a wise older white woman in the same room together, they would eventually come to the same conclusion given the same set of data and evidence and facts and stuff. Uh, they're the, they're the, the, you know, the character, the social, the difference being male and female. Um, you know, my, my kind of says she doesn't believe that, you know, she, you can read it for yourself, the, the speech, but that she's not, at least not sure that there's anything like a universal wisdom there. Well, at this point, I, again, I, I feel like I just need to chuck my Bible out the window. I mean, what is Proverbs telling us about wisdom? What are the Psalms telling us about wisdom? Um, if this yeah, yeah. is also going to be our approach to theology, then again, you're not just getting contextual theology. You're getting what my colleague and my, 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 my friend Ed Echeverria and I were talking about with correlation theology, which is a very different method of doing, or dialogical theology, right? That just as history changes, 
So does everything else. Everything. Yeah, and I think that what's important is you'd have to ask the question, does this particular conclusion apply to Nathan's paper as well? Right. But he right. It's not clear. Is he going right now he's only explaining to us? Yes. The question though is that if he's trafficking again in social theory, which as history goes, so society goes, as society goes, so does reality. Yeah. Well, then we should, we're at least, we at least have our, we, right now we're a little bit on the defensive. We're bracing that. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that question of what is saying as a race scholar, what, how is that functioning? And what's the attribution to that? Is that to say as a CRT scholar? Is that, does, do, do, do these apply to what you're doing? Is the, is the Europe, is the, the, so although the races are socially constructed, once they're constructed, they have this, this social reality. And then, is it really going to be the case that different subsections of a society are producing incompatible areas of knowledge? Because, and then you know where that's going to lead is to, again, we've mentioned it so many times, some kind of Nietzschean sort of view where then, well, the only thing that can adjudicate between which generated set of knowledge is the accepted one is whoever's got the political power. Which, yeah, is, which is the second the, one, which is, second, I think, which while is the it's the second point, the second conclusion. Yeah, which is what I think, yeah, at true. least to Kimberly Crenshaw, this is who he's quoting, at yeah. least to her credit, I do think she's pointing to the natural conclusions that if you accept the first, this right. is the second thing that does, I think, come about. She writes, um, or he, he writes, a second, because perspectives are inherently political, right? So if there's no objective reality, I think that's fair to say that they become social or contingent upon the prevailing views of society. CRT scholars contend that scholarship, quote, the formal production identification organization of that, or rather what will be called knowledge is inevitably political, end quote. Legal histories, this is now Nathan, for example, establish political visions of a country through which they highlight or ignore. So law, if you don't have objective reality if they're not trying to find out what yeah. is just and what is true and or what is moral then laws function as establishing political visions right law is a is a is a useful fiction yeah for other uh uh goals um i mean and here in the crenshaw quote just so we, and i'll make i'll make a reference it's just she says the formal production um ellipses of what will be called knowledge. And it, it's hard. It's, it, I don't think we can stress this enough. And Charles Taylor, in his book, A Secular Age, outlines the history of moving from a mimetic culture to a poesious culture. The mimetic culture, again, being the culture that believes that it's, it is mimicking an order that is embedded in the cosmos. Right, it's we, that we are on a exactly. we are on a journey of discovery. The po the poesias culture, the shift towards poesias is not that we are trying to create or uh, ground our social structures in a higher reality that we can discover, but that we create things and then call them higher realities there there really is it's, it's generating yeah uh knowledge it's not discovering uh truth 
there, I don't think there's anything more incompatible than that to a Christian worldview, to a biblical worldview. Yeah, well, I mean, you could apply this just to different commandments or laws by which God issued. I mean, is the this where we get just relevant to Moses in his day? I mean, they, yeah. Or, I mean, not even just relevant to the, to the Roman day, but that they were just established, not necessary for the moral conduct or for the development of a particular right. society, but for the sole purpose of just promoting some political vision. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so here we go. And again, we don't know if, if Nathan is going to embrace this in his own work, but again, we're suspicious. So, uh, and this is where too, also when you get into the mimesis versus the poesias culture, um, this is why now you're seeing people in the hard sciences getting real nervous as well, because the hard sciences are downstream from this or they're under, under. Well, they are being fire under from. scrutiny. Yeah. Which would, I mean, this could be an interesting conversation when you have, you know, mathematicians and yeah. physicists and biologists being attacked even though they don't have scholarship backgrounds in CRT, does their scholarship in their hard science lend credit to the defense of that hard science? That would be an interesting question to have. Okay. That's why we need like, I mean, you, you see manifestations like this when you get like feminist glaciology, which was an actual paper in uh, I think science, mm -hmm. the journal science. Okay. Third conclusion is that CRT advocates conclude that the civil rights movement was insufficient, basically. Yeah. Now, David, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, this is interesting. So he says that third CRT scholarship argues that analysis of U.S. histories of law should promote a, quote, deep dissatisfaction with traditional civil rights discourse, end quote. Here's what I don't understand. If that is a conclusion of CRT, then what is the objection to John MacArthur, and he quotes him that, saying that CRT is a source of anger, resentment, and vengeful uh, separation. It seems like, could you, could, does a deep dissatisfaction promote? Close enough, right? Is that close enough? Close now enough. are we just kind of, yeah. are we just mincing words at this point? Going, well, that's well, not the exact technical word. He's not angry. He's just deeply dissatisfied. I don't know if that's a distinction with much of a difference. Well, and I want to point something out and we won't have time to really go into this, but we'll have to do another episode where we try and get a little bit more into this, the spirituality here. I mean, there is a sense of where uh, Marx and other sort of revolutionaries. Um, and, you know, you see some of this in Thomas Sowell's book when he talks about the people who hold to the unconstrained vision of man where man is unconstrained by anything like a human nature or original sin, and we're perfectible in our own power. I mean, spiritually speaking, what are we talking about here? Are we our own gods? Really? I mean, how much perfection are we looking for here? And, and do we really think that we can attain it if we just, again, continue to tweak the system? Look, C.S. Lewis. Well, it's not tweaking the yeah. system. If we overthrow the system, could we then well, obtain it? I'm sorry, constantly yeah. over, but constantly overthrow it. Yeah. I think it's a perpetual revolution. This is but, what C.S. Lewis describes hell as in screw tape letters, basically. Yeah, right. yeah and, it, well, and it's weird is that yeah. any overthrow of the system is just going to be what? A set of laws that promote a vision of society that is not objectively better or worse than the previous or the it's, it's just constant system. revolution. There's a great song 
uh, by uh, The Who that sums it all up. It's called Won't Get Fooled Again. Everybody should just listen to that song and then you'll know what we're talking about and read the lyrics. There you go. Well, and then here's the question then. Like, if that's what it promotes, yeah. when you say deeply dissatisfied, what, what does that even mean anymore where it's the perpetual evolution of a particular system that has no sort of anchor to anything objective? Do you get, I mean, in other words, is what John MacArthur highlighting just downstream? right? Of what happens. You get anger, resentment, and vicious, you know, separation of people. Well, and he says, look, he says, um, citizens in the U.S. ignored their racist past. That's certainly true to some, to some extent. Yeah. Uh, misrepresented the legal systems undergirding that past. But here's the, here's the kicker, I think, and settled for relatively minor remedies rather than radical reconstruction. Now, I, I would contest that the civil rights movement has had a major hand in things like interracial marriages happening. Is, are, are interracial marriages minor remedies to the problem of racism? I mean, that's where they have to get. I mean, at least at least that's what they're claiming. If these aren't, I mean, this is where you see the whole thing. in life except two people living together for the entirety of their lives and producing, you know, children who are in, who are racially different. Even if it is a social construct, that would be, to me, that would be the ultimate goal. And if you got that, you're doing good. You know, when I was on a panel discussion up in Oregon on this, Dr. Uh, David Manick, who is a He's half Japanese, half Finnish, I believe. And he was raised by Scotch-Irish parents because his, bar- his biological parents died young. Double, I think he's got, two pa- he's got a PhD in psych- psych- uh, psychiatry or neuroscience. And I think he's got a master's from Fuller in theology. And he said, here's my answer to racial injustice. Interracial marriage. We should all just find spouses who look different than us and have kids. But he was, he was serious. I mean, look, it's like, come on. It's a human solution. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, and again, a little bit. Well, and yeah. I think, you know, as we move on, I mean, that's another yeah. question to have. Like, is the Civil War not considered a radical reconstruction? I mean, what, again, this goes to the question, okay, what more do you want? I mean, what hundreds of thousands of people died for this. Yeah. And that's not radical enough. I mean, and maybe this is where, you get to see maybe some of the, you know, speculating where you see these power dynamic philosophies that come out where hundreds of thousands just aren't enough for the social vision. Look at societies that adopted these side of utopian social visions. Hundreds of thousands usually, unfortunately, aren't enough. Well, and you know, you might, and the other, and and the, the thing that I wanted when I went, go back to like is CRT, especially with some of these conclusions about radical, I mean, needing a radical renovation, a reconstruction. What else do you want to throw out that was sort of born out of Eurocentric Enlightenment culture? How about the history of medicine? I mean, why not get rid of all of our medical technologies? Because those seem to have done pretty well under the rule of Eurocentric post-Enlightenment culture. Yeah. Better than in most non 
European cultures, right? So maybe we should take a second look at um, the last three or 400 years of development in medical technologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is it. And I forgot to mention this at the beginning. I'm not going to go too far to the very front of the article, but I think this is important when you ask, well, what do you want? Yeah. He does say it's just in passing. And if you don't look at the citation, you'd miss it. He just says that he, he, you know, quoting Nathan, all these horrendous injustices force Christians to reconsider how to love their neighbor in a racialized society. Now, what is he referring to? He's referring to a study from a book. And I'm just going to read the, I mean, I read it through some of the reviews of the synopses and some of the step-by-step -step arguments that are taken with it. But just to quote something that for the audience that they can at least get a picture of what they're going with. I think this is just uh, the back coverage where the quote comes from. But the book writes, um, the authors write, through a nationwide telephone survey of 2,000 people and an additional 200 face-to-face -face interviews, Michael O. Emerson and Christian Smith probed the grassroots of white evangelical America. They found that despite recent efforts by the movement's leaders to address the problem of racial discrimination, evangelicals themselves seem to be preserving America's racist, racial chasm. In fact, most white evangelicals see no systemic discrimination against blacks. Again, just be careful. They're not saying they don't see no discrimination. They don't see no systemic discrimination, which is different. But the authors contend that it is not active racism that prevents evangelicals from recognizing ongoing problems in American society. So, so there you go. They deny that part, the discrimination part. Instead, it is the evangelical movement's emphasis on individualism, free will, and personal relationships that makes invisible the pervasive injustice that perpetuates racial inequality. So you have at least three things that they're going to attribute. It's the emphasis on individualism, free will, and personal relationships, which seem to be, is this what you'd have to give up? That seems a pretty tough, tough to swallow to give those things up. Yeah. Yeah. This, well, we talked about individualism and merit uh, in the, in one of the previous pod, uh, the podcasts that we did on the, um, on the panel discussion. And that'll kind of come up again when we did in our video on part two of this essay, especially the meritocracy. Um, I think the idea that we shouldn't maintain our focus on individual personal relationships, um, you know, and, and people will make the say like, you know, if, if it's saying like, to emphasize individual and personal relationships is to deny that there are institutional issues. Well, no, it's not. But it, but because it, but to say that the answer to institutional issues is better personal relationships, I think is the argument. Yeah. Is breaking down the barriers between persons so that you form better better uh, communities and cultures. That's that's the argument. So that seems very straw manish uh, to me. Um, and and what are you going to do then? What are you, are you actually going to tell people not to have personal relationships and friendships and marriages? Which to me is just then you're basically you're 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 working from something. I I don't know. That's like Sartre or something. That's some kind of demonically inspired existentialist dark philosophy. I don't know. Yeah. Um, fourth conclusion. The narrowing of remedial actions. 
Scholars contend that the narrowing of remedial actions requires acknowledging that although, quote, civil rights advocates met with some success in the nation's courts and legislators, end quote, from whoever, these successes ought not obscure the central role the American legal order played in the de-radicalization of racial liberation movements. Again, there's that liberation word which goes back to the existentialists, Marx and the existentialist philosophers. At what point are we liberated? Yep. So, in other words, the radical racial movement was defanged. It was defanged. So the civil rights movement, in, in short, just wasn't radical enough, right? Yeah, that's going to be their argument. Now, this is where also you start to worry about what exactly do they want? Are we moving into some kind of, you know, and we've seen this, thought control, getting into people's heads, you know, um, changing language. I mean, this is all the stuff where of Big Brother. Uh, or I mean, I'm not... Again, he's just explaining for us. At this yeah, point. yeah. Again, I mean, he, yeah. he has a little bit of his book coming out. He has some more articles yeah. that we will be going through. But I mean, this is, I mean, Michelle Alexander gives a, an example where they said, oh, maybe we could, he, she talks about um, felony employment. There's some, there's some contradictions within her book that I think, but we'll just ignore the contradictions for the second where she says, okay, what we did was we got, we got rid of the box is what she, what she argued. And then she goes on to explain, well, there then became another system which seemed to also discriminate. And so what we need to do is change the mindset. Now, again, I think this is where you're gonna see conservatives and maybe not necessarily just liberals, but this sort of utopian vision, mm -hmm. visionary people, is where conservatives are gonna be more asking the question, okay, how do you, how do you try to remediate racial tensions or racial discrimination through policies or personal action that can get at the person and sort of make the best sort of society in a society that will never be perfect versus those who are saying, but you know what, if we do these few things, we can make a perfect society. And I think that's this, this sort of ideological tension right. is how much is enough is perfection. The only standard by which we, I mean, this is the conversation you have with like epistemology is certainty the criteria by which we evaluate all theories. Or is there some sort of imperfect knowledge at which we have to say is, is good enough and try to work Optimistic from that view? fallibilism is a friend of ours, we call it. <laughs> yeah. um, so the dual framing of race as race consciousness and race consciousness as irrational left inhabitants in the U.S. linguistically destitute. And again, here, and he, he talked about this in the panel uh, discussion about it became... The idea was that if you were even conscious of, conscious, conscious of race, that that was irrational. You know, he says the Black Panthers were trying to reach across the border uh, and bring whites into their community. Ku Klux Klan, obviously not. Um, but, you know, the idea here being that um, most people wanted to just not deal thought that if if you even looked at race or thought about it that itself was irrational yeah i think this is I, a little bit of a misnomer yeah because i don't think i don't i don't see a lot of people denying that race is important i do see the conversation that race is no longer fundamental yeah 
I mean, important can be used in varying ways. It could be important in bad ways. It can be important in good ways. But I think the real kind of heavy work that's being done or the real heavy contest that's been waged is whether or not race is fundamentally important or is it not? And I think the argument that it's not fundamentally important is more in line with the Christian doctrine of being right. created in the image of God and so on and so forth. When I think too, I think McWhorter argues as well. I think, I, I don't quote me on that, although it's on the video, but I think he also talks about race not being fundamental. And I think Coleman Hughes has a new book coming out where he's arguing for the uh, colorblind theory of race and meritocracy as being preferable yeah. to seeing to seeing race as fundamental or maybe even central. I don't know. I know I think there is a Christian response here, which is something like a celebration of di- of ethnic diversity in the body of Christ. Um, yeah, it seems like ethnic or even incapacity. Yeah, as well. well. Right, and we'll have to do another uh, episode on something a more positive uh, approach here. Um, and then fifth, of course, is <laughs> I love this term. I'm sorry. I don't love it. Uh, I think it's ridiculous. But uh, he says, fifth, CRT scholars agree that social forms of organized forgetting enabled a massive rewriting. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I, he's using that metaphorically, right? I mean, nobody actually yeah, got so. it together and said, all right, everybody. All right, let's get all the whole society of historians together and ah, let's forget. Yeah, the whole like pink elephant um, deal. Right. But, <laughs> I'm not going to think about it anymore. You know, I guess this would be like a selective, what he's saying is there was a selective writing, rewriting of history, sorry, rewriting, which is interesting, of history that left out, with that bolstered colorblind meritocracy, which is a white uh, aspect of whiteness. This is what I think Hughes is going to argue for that we should have a colorblind meritocracy. Um, so that this was a rewriting of history in promoting the idea of a colorblind meritocracy as a solution. And then, of course, people would quote Martin Luther King Jr. out of, out of context. Not really sure if they did, but, um, but he claims that, you know, quoting Dr. Martin Luther King I mean, is probably, he's probably referring to, and I don't want to be too much, is just that popular quote that flies around about the content of your character, but not the color of your skin, I think is probably right. Which I'm not sure is a meritocracy argument. It's more of a virtue based argument. Right. And we'll have to, we'll deal with more with the meritocracy question in, in the second. And we do in the second and I'll probably also in the third part of this essay. Because I, I don't think when people, especially like some of these other uh, critical race theory theorists who are theologians, and they talk about meritocracy as not being as being an aspect of whiteness or a feature of whiteness, um, you know, that has to be sort of again expunged from our religious thinking or our theological thinking. Because well, it would be interesting to see. I don't see meritocracy coming out of the colonial issue. Most of these were kingdoms. So they had a land and nobility. They yeah. had a monarchy. So you don't really see meritocracy coming into the picture when you, until you see something like an advanced form of capitalism. But again, that's not coming until maybe... I mean, social roles 
were certainly more fixed prior to the Reformation and the Industrial Revolution in virtue of people's birth, right? Yeah. So, so you have to make, even going saying it's just Western European thought that produced this, you also have to realize there is a history of Western thought, which didn't start with meritocracy as really being a fundamental view of anything, really. I mean, here's one suggestion for, uh, especially maybe some of the theologians that were on that panel that we will link to. If you don't want individual meritocracy, we could go back to something like uh, Middle Ages, um, where yeah. in virtue of your birth, that is your status. And that's where you stay yeah. the entirety of your life. Um, and there's sort of the royalty, there's the you know, various classes, and you, you just are in that class. And that would probably also apply to who you can marry, who, can, who, you, who you can be friends with. Hey, we could go back to a system like that. A lot of maybe a lot of well, traditional it, Roman Catholics might. I don't know. I'll have to ask my friends. Yeah, but it's just you know when, you know American meritocracy, you know equal opportunity. It's well, these are ideas that do have a yeah. history in which they or were the, developed. The Russian and the, communist system where you 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 gauge what society needs, and then you just say we need reorder. so and so yeah. many million bricklayers. We need so and so million, and you. It doesn't matter if you're good at that or bad at that. That's what you're going to do, because that's what. That's what we need. What society in needs or something. Yeah. Nope. So there's, right. there's other, I guess, other options. It's just, you know, you're going to have to, again, this comes, I guess, maybe to a context argument where it's like, well, maybe what they think when they say meritocracy is just what, you know, everyone just gets what they deserve. And that's not necessary meritocracy. Yeah. In fact, meritocracy was trying to loosen up the rigid social rules and was in a, a very ironic way, a, a liberating mm -hmm. quote unquote endeavor. I mean, there well, I don't want to get off. There is, there are maybe some arguments for something like having just fixed social roles gives us, in a, in some sense, more stability. But again, does, yeah, anybody exactly. really want, does anybody really want to go back there? Um, yeah. Okay, so those were the five points. So the last one again being that there was an organized forgetting of history a promotion of colorblind meritocracy is the solution to our social ills. And, um, well, he ends with this quote, at least in this section, right. Um, we can look at the last section uh, briefly, but he, uh, I don't know who he's quoting. Yeah. We don't it's not clear, but he just says rather than engaging in a broad scale inquiry into why jobs, wealth, education, and power are distributed as they are, Mainstream civil rights discourse suggests that the irrational bias of race consciousness are eradicated. Everyone will be treated fairly as equal competitors in a regime of equal opportunity. There's, there's, a, there's a few things that make this yeah. very troublesome. The first part is a broad scale inquiry into why jobs, wealth, education, power distributed as they are. This is, if, if there's no other job for an economist, it's this. Why are jobs distributed throughout an economy in a particular kind of way? So I think there has been widespread, and you have to read the economic literature to kind of see that unfold. They do a lot of um, digging into what human beings are and how they're supposed to flourish, and what sort of economic theories are more um, conducive to human flourishing. So there, there, there's a there's a history of intellectual investigation that that could be brought there. The second one is this idea that everyone will be treated fairly. I don't know. It depends on what you mean by fairly. Yeah. Because given 
equal opportunity would well it depends on what, how you right. talk about equal opportunity it, right there there's so much crunched in you're going to really have to i don't think we have time in this episode to go over it but what does it mean to be treated fairly does it mean something like a meritocracy does it mean something like you're getting what you deserve um because it doesn't seem like people were committed that if you eliminated racism you would eliminate um, race consciousness yeah well not even race conscious but like uh, certain things just aren't going to be valued in society, right, right? Right. So, like the value of your production wasn't going to be set or fixed in what would be. Well, this is a Marx, Marxian view. Like the labor costs are automatically put into the value of the product, which isn't entirely true because if it's not a valued product, it's not going to sell. Doesn't matter if it t- took you ten years to make it. Unfortunately. So there's there's just right. you're gonna have to you're gonna have to break that down a little bit. All right. And then the final paragraph here is towards a Christian response. So again, uh, maybe I was a little, I got a little um, uh, wound up earlier because again, we are assuming that there's a, there's a, again, there's a Christian, there's a Christianizing, there's a, there's going to be a a bringing the biblical uh, worldview to bear on critical race theory that is somehow going to amend or alter it in such a way that it will not only be compatible with uh, Christian metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, but will enhance, will help us to enhance our, uh, how we can think about justice in the world. Okay. He says, how should Christians respond to these common interests and conclusions? They should be, be, begin by recalling that Christ and the apostles called the church to foster justice and mercy, giving special attention to the marginalized and the oppressed. And he cites a few Bible chapters here, Matthew 25 and James 1. Now, this did raise um, question. Now, I would reference here are my dialogue with Dr. Cal Beisner, uh, uh, the social justice versus biblical justice interview. Uh, Because obviously we are going to give special attention to the marginalized and oppressed, but Dr. Beisner did a good job of what the Bible actually says about the marginalized oppressed, who they are and what we're actually supposed to do towards them. Exactly. Okay. Now, one question that does come up though on my mind if we don't christianize in some way or bring the biblical data to bear on crt i mean what happens when one group that was marginalized well jacob made this point can a group that is currently marginalized or considered marginalized or oppressed can they become non-marginalized or non-oppressed or in virtue of the social fact of race are they always oppressed regardless of their power yeah well and the additional question you have not i don't know if there's a question of do they become non-oppressed but once someone becomes not oppressed do they automatically become oppressor Yeah. Well, that's that's that. That was my other question: Is 
Is there a third state? Or are there only the two states? Is there a neutral ground where you are neither the oppressor nor the oppressed? Is that, or is that just heaven? Is that right. just, I mean, oh God, I don't know. Um, well, it would seem at least if there was a neutral position, it would have to be connected in some fundamental way to the prevailing law. So maybe that's what they would argue. Is, well, it depends on what the legal system is, if it permits a neutral, I guess. I don't know. It seems like the theory itself doesn't lend to a, a clear explanation, though. Right. Um, I haven't seen one. I haven't seen any answer to that question yet. Is there, a, is there a third state where a social group or a racial group is neither oppressor nor oppressed? Uh, maybe that's a research question. So, uh, I think you know, he says that this demands, it demand, you know, he says there's been a lot of shoddy work done. Uh, maybe, th maybe this is, <laughs> this is we're contributing to the shoddy work. We're contributing to the shoddy work. So Dr. Cartagena, we apologize for that. Um, you know, we must labor, understand and evaluate CRT in light of history, political philosophy, sociology, theology, et cetera, et cetera. This is what neighbor love demands. I'm going to punt to just getting out there and having good friendships and personal relationships, but go ahead. Yeah. I mean, do both if you can. Um, but okay. So that sets us up for the next two essays, which we have part two done already. Um, and we'll reference just at the end here as we wrap up. Oh, did you have any more um, comments just on that final paragraph? Just one. He writes and either require um, he said, and either require treating the varied positions tied to these conclusions. You never know these requirements by reading Christian's pithy rejections or shallow endorsements of CRT. Yeah. I think it's fair. That's a fair assessment. I would just be careful that there's been a lot of scholar, Christian scholarship that has levied, I think, legit criticism against CRT. And right. I didn't see a lot of that being brought into this discussion. Right. And I would say that even if um, I just listened to the pod, a podcast uh, with uh, Scott Ray, Dr. Scott Ray at Talbot School of Theology, interviewing David French, where David and I, I was a little worried about David French because I thought, is he trying to talk about everything? But he does have a lot of experience with critical race theory. I had forgotten, of course, that he did his law degree at Harvard in the 90s, I think 90s, maybe early 2000s. Um, and he said, quote, I, I didn't, he said, I didn't just, I wasn't just um, uh, introduced to critical race theory. He says, I, I was marinated in critical race theory because that's, mm -hmm. that's what was being taught yeah. in the legal department at, at Harvard. He had to, you know, learn these theories. So he does have a, a long history with this. And I think it's safe to say, based on what I've read from his pen and heard him say in his interviews, that while he might say critical race theory uh, can give us some descriptive uh, tools, some way to describe localized phenomena, like why maybe some black communities don't have certain things that white communities do, I think, you know, he's, he's made it clear that 
critical race theory as a macro level way of looking at like American history, gen, you know, any, any kind of macro level thing, like the history yeah. of America, you know, yeah. or as, as in any way being able to prescribe a way forward. You know, I think he's, he's pretty clear that this is not something that Christian Christians can embrace. It's not, it can't be used as a universal hermeneutical lens through which we see all of society and culture and theology. And it can't really prescribe much as far as solutions, maybe even to these more localized concrete issues. Yeah. So, and so it seems like some of the, so, so some of the work, academic work would be, I think in part breaking CRT away from some of the initial visions of how CRT would be used. Right. And uh, so anyways, um, we'll end there. Hopefully that'll give Dr. Cartagena some things to think about, but I doubt he'll even see this video. So, but anyways, thank you for everybody for joining us and we will see you next time.